0: back to Tuesday at Dobbs's from here in Bali. I want to start off this week's episode with my pick, a bike for the week. Because for two days last week I had the Kawasaki Z900RS and it's been about two months since I've had any bike over 150 to 200cc and you start to forget how special it feels to have a big capacity bike. And from a vanity point of view, having a, a dream level bike that really generates interest wherever it goes, the kind of bike that you feel genuinely proud to own. It was a great experience, even though most of the time I used about 30% of the power available, if not less, but just knowing you've got that power on tap whenever you need it. its uh, that's a very, very special feeling and it does get me excited to get back to Europe where I've got a bigger selection a bigger motorcycles available on tap. I saw a comment about five or six days ago with regards to the worst motorcycles you've ever owned. And while this wasn't specifically this rider's worst motorcycle they've ever owned, They mentioned having an old honda x11 that they had to get rid of just because it was it was too intense it was too powerful it was too aggressive all of the time but that got me thinking the honda x11 is the naked version of the honda super blackbird it was only made from 1999 to 2002 so very very short window of production it never sold well but on mcn it gets a rating of four out of five stars. And the owner's rating on these bikes, 4.9 out of five stars. They are in essence, unburstable, unbreakable, superb engine, just, great value, limited equipment, not a retro bike, but a proper old school, big naked. And if you go online and have a look, Auto Trader, there are just three available now. The cheapest one, if you're not looking for something modified, is £3,500 for a 2002 model with 33,000 miles on the clock. But there on the edgier side of a traditional bike, but they've got this, this plastic fairing on either side of them, completely naked apart from that singular front headlamp, gigantic seat that looks like it would be all day comfort with that huge 1100 CC engine. And I believe, I think it's about 130 horsepower, 134 horsepower for three and a half thousand pounds. I am sure I'm sure that's a good investment for the future. Big Japanese naked bikes usually end up being very good investments. And the fact that this is now 21 years old for the newest model available, I think within the next three, four, five years or so, this is going to be a highly desirable classic. Keep an eye on that. I'll be very interested to see over the next few years where prices go. Right, I move on. This is this is some good news because Norton, the British motorcycle brand, they really are pushing things on now. They have just opened up their own little boutique outlet in the bike shed in Shoreditch, London. So the bike shed in Shoreditch is uh, a really cool trendy biker hangout you can eat you can have a coffee you ride your motorbike through the cafe area to the bike parking so you can sit there having your coffee and bikes just pass by all day great selection of gear including bell staff beautifully designed inside you've got a barber and other things i've been there many times and you can very very easily spend three hours or so there. And Norton have taken up a spot right at the front of Bike Shed, right on the street view in Shoreditch. They've got a a Savile Row designer to design their off-road biking gear, the casual gear. They've got all of their, I think it's three models on display, so you can come. I think you may be able to test them out, but just the fact that Norton have, have taken this spot at Bike Shed, and I believe they've got four other spots now, franchise spots within the UK where they're going to be selling their motorbikes. It's a huge statement of intent. Uh, I remember just a few years ago, maybe three years ago, or so really thinking, it's not gonna happen for Norton. Badly managed, always in the press for the worst possible reasons. And I just ended up thinking this is going to be another disaster story. Because it's very rare that, unfortunately, these British brands End up being successful run under british ownership and unfortunately that ended up not being the case for norton they're now run by an indian company which is often the case jaguar land rover indian run that's by tata royal enfield and or rolls royce and mini if we look at those brands they're run by bmw enfield of course indian run bsa indian run you've got very very few brands there that are that are really run by an umbrella british company We've got lovely brands, but for some reason the management side of things never ends up working out along with the high quality brand. We always need foreign ownership and investment to be able to get these brands running. You could say we've got the likes of Triumph and that is a success story. You could say Aston Martin, but. Aston Martin always seemed to be teetering on the edge of complete failure. So it's very, very rare that you have a a British through and through own and run company. So the fact that Norton now they're overseen, they're overrun or they're run by an Indian company, I think that will probably be for the best in the long term. And the fact that they're now pushing on in such a way is fantastic. They're also built in Solihull. So this is a big success story, to have a British motorcycling brand that's built in Solihull. Prices aren't, look, prices aren't the most affordable. If I go and check out here, lovely looking bike, Norton Commando, Commando 961, 2023 onwards. Really beautiful thing that I hope to test out. Nothing here is market leading. Power of 76.8 horsepower, weight of 230 kilos, but bike social, Bennett's, they give it four and a half, or they give it four out of five. But that's a heavy bike with not much horsepower for the engine size at what is a gigantic chunk of money, probably about four... Probably about £4,000 more than a Triumph T120. But what do you get for that? Well, you get the exclusivity factor and you get the fact it's made in the UK. What's the value? This is the key. What's the value of it in yours, in my mind, of it being made in the UK? How much of a premium would you be paying or would you be willing to pay for the fact that it is actually made in the UK? If I had... A significantly comfortable bank balance, I would probably consider buying one. They do look like lovely things, but that's huge. Huge, the fact that Norton's coming back with actual franchised dealers now. Right, I move on to Julian. Oh, this fits in well. This is a comment on last week's podcast episode. Freddie, listening to the vlog, it came or it amazes me how blinkered people can be. BMW and all of the Italian bike manufacturers couldn't meet deliveries during COVID because of the lack of parts being provided from China and Taiwan. In reality, BMW uh, are built in Germany from Chinese parts or a triumph with British identity built in China or India. I failed to see the difference. Julian. It's funny, Julian. Someone did message me about three weeks ago and... And they said similar of Moto Guzzi, they said, yes, Moto is made in Italy, but the reality is the majority of parts used are from China, so is there any real difference? And it's a fair point, Julian. Moving on to Adventure Dog, Freddie. Uh, if you dig... Oh, this is another one, Freddie. dig deep and you're going to realise a lot of Honda bikes and also components of Hondas are made elsewhere they, these days. Dare we say a large country beginning with C? Do you really think they could manufacture a Hornet for under 7,000 pounds and turn a profit on it if wholly manufactured in Japan? Honda are known for making bikes down to a price. Instead of ensuring quality at a slightly higher price, Yamaha actually topped the list in most consumer reports for reliability. Yeah, I mean, we're in a global world now. Is it a a ludicrously purist view to think that if I buy a Harley-Davidson, I want it made in the US from US parts? And if I want a British bike, I want it made in the UK with all UK parts. Is that just a ludicrously outdated point of view? Thank you for the input. Moving on to Jennifer. Freddie, I ride a Triumph Bonneville T120 in the Sublime Baja Orange and I'll be venturing aboard this year, but I hate the idea of a tank bag, but I also know it's the practical solution for passports, etc. I've got my eye on the trip machines. Let me put that up because that's a good choice, Jennifer. I've got my eye on the trip machines bag at Urban Rider, but I would love to know your views and other opinions that don't kill the vibe of a bike. I've got a black SW Motec Legends gear panniers. Thanks much, Lee Jennifer. Jennifer, I was almost going to give up on this and say you found the right ones with the Trip Machine. And you may well have done that because from the big obvious brands, the Trip Machine make a really nice selection of retro panniers and luggage for motorbikes. And for the first 30 minutes, Jennifer, of looking for this earlier today, I could find nothing at all. I went to all of the big, bright bike outlets, nothing. I very nearly just, couldn't help you out with this. But then I checked two different places that aren't specifically bike related. I put in, and this is a good tip for anyone looking for some slightly edgier stuff that's not always in the big outlets. I went on to Pinterest and I went to Etsy and I typed in motorcycle tank luggage. And Jennifer, I think I found something for you. In fact, I'm so happy with my with my work in finding this. I may consider this for my big trips as well. This is from Pinterest. I typed into Pinterest tank bag in black and this beautiful looking retro, I think it's wax cotton tank bag came up with a little space on the top. I'll put a picture here where you can put a traditional paper map and it's just got four magnetic tags on the bottom so you just place it onto your tank i found out from pinterest it's called wheelborn typed wheelborn into the internet into my browser and it's an american company that make handmade in the usa accessories for motorbikes and let me just put a few of these pics up here lovely looking thing It should fit perfectly onto the Bonneville T120. It should be perfectly in keeping and it's enough space, for example, to have a bit of loose change. If you go to any tolls, your passports, a few of your essentials, just put it onto your tank, take it off when you're finished with it. It should be incredibly easy to take on and off. And key here, Jennifer, I would buy this myself as well. It's $225, so it's not cheap, but, Every bag is made to order, as far as I can tell here, from the USA 15 ounce waxed canvas. I'll include a link in the description below because I think that's fantastic. And looking at these places on Etsy and Pinterest, you get to find things that you may never find otherwise. Let me know what you think, Jennifer. As a man of challenged elevation, I found that I was uncomfortable not being able to at least tiptoe on the big BMW GS of the time. I just wrote off the idea. Until, that is, Harley Davidson introduced the Pan America with adaptive ride height. That single feature and the incredible reviews piqued my interest. When I went to the Harley-Davidson dealership, looking around, it was clear that I didn't fit the typical demographic that I saw in the store. And yes, I admit that I am stereotyping, but I arrived on my Kawasaki wearing a helmet and other protective gear. But... With that in mind, the dealer treated me with the utmost respect and kindness, and when I compare a similar experience and treatment when I went to a European brand dealer to look at the Triumph Thruxton, I was not treated well at all, and I was somewhat shamed, for lack of better word, for riding a non-European motorcycle. Back to the dealer. I had arrived to test ride the 2023 Pan America. While I was there, I took a look at the road glide and sitting on it, I just realized that there was something interesting to me about that motorcycle. So I test rode it as well. Well, Freddy, it was amazing and such an interesting feeling that I cannot describe. I just loved it. All that to say, I'm now a Harley-Davidson owner and while I may not specifically associate with the old school Harley-Davidson brand, I find the service and the people to be very kind and include other traditional motorcycle or other traditional Harley-Davidson motorcycles I have met along the way. Jason from Colorado. Jason, you're, you're echoing here a large number of Harley-Davidson owners or a large number of motorcyclists that I've spoken to from the US. It's almost worrying to me the, the number of Harley owners in the US who have had a negative experience with European biking brands and outlets and the two I'm mentioning specifically, Triumph and Moto Guzzi. I've now heard from about five US bikers in the past two months or so who has said that their experience going to Triumph and Harley Davidson dealerships is just not good enough at all. They have an attitude of, of brands that are just better than others, and they, they have a real lack of welcoming attitude when you step into a Triumph dealer or a Triumph outlet and the same with Moto Guzzi really really negative feeling that I've heard so far from from US riders however on the flip side of things going into a Harley Davidson dealership in the US nothing but universally good feedback and I will echo that in Europe while the the Moto Guzzi and the, the Triumph dealers seem to be extremely nice in the UK Going into the Harley dealerships, whether it's in Spain or whether it's in the UK, they're always the loveliest people working there. And they really suck you in just by being so open and friendly into the lifestyle. I leave every time I visit a Harley dealership in Europe wanting a Harley because they're nothing like the, the... the outlook and the the appearance that that we often associate with Harleys, they're, they're always the friendliest, most welcoming bunch of people. Never a hard sell, always there if you have any questions, always got a smile on their face. I I love going to Harley dealers more so than any other dealership at all. So Jason, fascinating to hear your thoughts. And that, it's as simple as that, Harley or Harley or Triumph have potentially lost a customer there because they just weren't good enough at the dealerships. That's the importance of having, yes, a good dealer network, but also genuinely, it's a simple thing, heaven forbid, friendly people at a network, a a network of dealerships who are actually willing to help you. It sounds so simple, but a lot of the time, from from what I've heard, Triumph just aren't getting that right in the US. I move on to Ben. Freddie, I'm sorry to hear about your crash on the Scoopy in Bali. My partner and I actually crashed in Bali earlier this year on a Yamaha XSR 155. My question for you, has your Scoopy accident and knowing about the sheer amounts of accidents that tourists have in Southeast Asia affected your opinion of wearing protective gear? Ben, Ben, I do often get, I'll be completely honest, Uh, A lot of people telling me off for my lack of protective gear and this isn't just in Bali my attitude for protective gear is that if I'm riding around in town whether it's Bali or the UK and I think I'm going for example below 30 miles an hour so and I know it's just going to be a casual potter to the coffee shop or something like that I don't feel the need to wear any biking gear at all apart from a helmet. I'm more than happy to just go in jeans and a t-shirt if I know it's going to be slow riding. I, I know full well that 90% of the time if you're riding in town, you're going to be doing about bicycle speeds. I remember being in Tenerife, for example, and we were on a big ride out and we were riding down the volcano and I looked at my speedo. We were doing 40 miles an hour down the volcano in a huge group of bikers just snaking around. And I was overtaken by a cyclist. And this cyclist was wearing nothing but Lycra and a helmet on his head. Yet that's not specifically classed as dangerous. So for me, it's the speed more than anything, Ben. I'm more than happy if I'm doing up to 30 miles an hour to to wear no protective gearing at all. And the same applies for Bali. I, I had the crash, but it doesn't affect my my mentality at all. I didn't think after that crash, okay, Fred, time to wear more gear. No, the reality, Ben, for me is, if I would force myself to wear more gear in Bali, in Southeast Asia, let's say, okay, right, you have to wear at least the boots, the jeans and a t-shirt and the gloves. Maybe I could do without the jacket. But that means that I wouldn't ride. That's just the truth. It means I couldn't be bothered to just casually jump on the bike and go for a coffee because I'd be dreading putting on the gear so much that it would stop me riding. So it's as simple as that for me. It's accept that yes, I won't be as safe riding in the gear, but it means that I'm going to be happy jumping on and off the bike all the time. And it's all about that judging in your mind, gauging the risk factor. Yes, I could potentially get in a serious accident in Bali and be injured if I'm not wearing gear, but relatively speaking, the chances of that happening are very small, so I'm willing to take that risk. I hope you're okay though, Ben, on, uh, on your trip. And it's, it's really good you brought that up because I know this is a gigantically divisive topic. Um, I would say it's fairly close to 50-50 on, on people who will agree with me and disagree with me on that. Right, i move on to Joseph. Freddie, I thought I'd throw my hat in the ring as an alternative viewpoint to the young Americans view on Harley Davidson's comment that you read out on your 4th of April video. Look, I'm also an American. I'm in my early thirties, but with a completely different view of these bikes. I absolutely love them. I've always wanted one. And finally, after many payments, I own a Road King Special. Joseph, I rode, I rode a Road King Special. I love that bike. I really, really love that bike. It's a very, very special thing. But it seems that amongst my age group, I'm in the minority. Your commenter, or the commenter that you read from, uh, seems to confirm this, as unfortunately does my own experience. None of my friends own Harley Davidsons and none of them want one. If I attend a bike night in the US, I am always I am almost always the youngest or second to youngest person in attendance. What's interesting and perplexing to me is the question of why? Why do so many younger Americans have such a maligned perception of Harley Davidson? I don't know the answer to that, but if I had to try to answer that question, I would think it would be the cost. My God, a Harley Davidson's expensive now. You have to really want a bike to pay what is essentially the same as you pay for a fully capable car, regards Joseph US. To hear from the, the Americans about their views on Harleys has been one of the most polarizing insights that I've seen. I could I could have picked any one of about 15 insights from Americans in their picks on, on the state of Harley-Davidson and an insight into riding in the US. I've picked two or three here, but thank you all for sharing this insight. The polarizing opinion, it seems to be young and old from my point of view. Uh, just, just eye-opening. And your perception that the cost is a huge factor in this. Well, I thought Harley-Davidson's were, were infinitely better value in the US than they were in the rest of the world. I thought they were much more affordable, but it seems that even in the US, they are expensive things. I remember Joseph, even up until about three years ago, I'd often look at Harley-Davidson's online and I'd type in Harley-Davidson for sale in Florida, for example with a hope to find a good value cheap one. And I would often find great value ones and think, great, it's worth going to the US just to pick up a Harley Davidson because they are such good value as a used proposition. But the truth is used Harley Davidsons in the US aren't far off used Harley Davidson prices in Europe now. It's a fascinating thing to see. I can put this into some context from my point of view, Joseph. If i do a review video on youtube for example and i review a royal enfield and this has nothing to do with my ability to make a good video by the way it's just an insight from my point of view as to what bikes grab more people's attention i can do a video on a royal enfield and they can get huge numbers of views because people like royal enfields nothing to do with the quality of my video but because people like royal enfields i can then do a video on a Harley Davidson and, and they will get a, a fraction of the number of views. And from my point of view, that's because a far, far larger group of the general population can identify more with Royal Enfields because they're affordable. I'll get a, a far higher viewership of younger riders, a younger audience watching the Royal Enfield videos because it's so simple. If I'm getting into biking and I'm looking at bikes, I'm not looking at Royal Enfields because I know I can't afford them. If I'm a 23-year-old who wants to get into biking, that's a lovely thought, getting a Royal Enfield. But it's, also, it's a lovely thought getting a Harley Davidson, sorry. But it's also a lovely thought if I'm a car driver buying a Ferrari. But I know it's not going to happen because I can't afford one. So then I look at what the affordable motorcycles are that look genuinely cool, that give me that feeling of nostalgia, or that give me that feeling of what I want a bike to give me. And the fact that we can be looking at Royal, Enf- the fact that we can be looking, sorry, at Harley-Davidson's at 23,000 pounds. Well, I'm sorry, I can't afford a car at 23,000 pounds. So why would I be buying a motorbike at that price? And that Joseph is exactly it. It can come down to something as simple as price. And again, it, it almost annoys me. Why aren't Harley Davidson building a lovely looking, retro, simple, cheap, affordable bike? Why can't they make a Sportster 883, for example, but something that could be, surely 9K could be possible, could it not? Just the most basic stripped back, but still beautifully classic styled Harley Davidson. Is that not possible? Joseph, thank you for the insight. Moving on and carrying on with with the US, let me give you one more here, just a final one from the US. Hiya, Freddie. I've been following your discussions of Harleys, wherein you had an American write in about the stigma that Harley carries in the US. Summed up, and this summed up almost everything that I've been thinking while listening. Look, when I moved to the UK two years ago, I couldn't believe how much Harley Davidsons were beloved here when riders pine, uh, where riders sorry, in the UK pine for an American ideal that just doesn't exist. You see, in America, Harleys not only carry a stigma of being for old men or violent groups, they also carry a political stigma. In the US, Harleys are seen by non-riders as a vestige of a bygone American era, and thus for people who are, at best, more conservative in their political opinions. And at worst, intolerant racists. I'm not saying this is an accurate judgment, and I've known enough Harley-Davidson riders to know that it is not the entirety of the Harley nation. But it is the general perception, particularly with folks of my age and younger. I'm thirty-six for reference, who tend to be more politically progressive. Regards, Michael. Very interesting, Michael. Thank you for sharing. Moving on, Freddie. I've now passed. Uh, oh, Freddie, I've now passed and have been saving up for a Yamaha XSR seven hundred. I'm almost ready to pull the trigger. So I talk to. I've talked to some biker friends at work. One of them, who is a sports bike rider, said he's getting too old and will sell his Ducati 848 for just £5,000. It only has 3,000 miles and he's a fastidious and meticulous kind of guy. It's cheap because he's very... I like this. It's cheap because he's very wealthy and I've been somewhat of an understudy of his. It was, uh, it was naked and retro bikes that inspired me to get into biking, but I humored him and Googled, the model, and Googled the model and it is stunning in dark gray. Yeah, I know this one, I know this. I just, I'll put a pic of it up here because these are lovely things. I just don't know what to do. He's so meticulous that he changes the bike's belts every 2,000 miles. The Yamaha is well-reviewed, also very beautiful and plenty of power, but the Ducati is a bargain and it's jaw-dropping. The other major issue is whether an 848 is too much for a beginner rider with only a few months in Southeast Asia worth of biking experience. What would you do? This is actually an easy answer for me. Yamaha, you're a new biker. And as a new biker, and I'm stating the obvious here, you're going to want to bike. Some people, after a while, realize that they they love owning a bike and taking it out for the occasional ride because they enjoy the ownership experience of a bike and just the enjoyment of taking a bike out every so often on a Sunday ride, just to stretch the bike's legs and the feeling of owning that bike. And that, for me, and I welcome any, anyone coming back to me on this. That is what that Ducati 848 is. That Ducati 848 is not the kind of bike that you're going to be using and racking up the mileage on a consistent basis because it is not comfortable enough to be going out and doing big rides on. It's going to be far too compromised if you want to go on longer trips, if you want to do touring. And as a rider getting into biking, you will not be able to get into biking to the fullest with a bike like that. So even if it's good value, it will not be the right kind of bike for you. I would say you have to go with that XSR 700. It's a far more rounded bike. You'll be able to have far more adventures on it. It will be far, far less maintenance than the Ducati. And for me, it's a much more sensible choice. Yes, as a new biker, you may find the 848 slightly too powerful as well, but in general, Even forget about that, the bike that you need, XSR 700, 100%. Freddie. following on from Steve's question last week about the topic of Royal Enfield's lower power and whether you think you'd be disappointed with 45 horsepower on a motorcycle. Here are my thoughts. I've owned my Royal Enfield Interceptor 650 for three years now. I ride it every day, rain or shine, and it's still my dream bike. But I was really interested to find out what the Bonneville was like to ride. So yesterday I booked in a test ride on a brand new T120 with all of the bells and whistles to see what the hype was about. I headed down to destination Triumph Solent and took one out for a spin. Look, it was lovely, fast, smooth, and refined. It was everything I thought it would be. After the test ride, I was walking out of the dealership and I saw a small group of people gathered around the Interceptor, which was parked up in a lineup of Bonnevilles, Tigers and Street Triples for sale. I got talking to the guys and they were so intrigued about my bike. One guy actually thought it was for sale and was about to ask the dealer for a test ride. They all owned Triumphs, but thought that the Interceptor stood out and looked so cool. I started it up and they all watched as I pulled off down the road into, a, into the spring afternoon sunshine. And this got me thinking as I was riding home through the breathtaking countryside of the South Downs. Would I trade my Interceptor for a T100? Or would I trade my Interceptor, sorry, for a T120? Even though the Bonneville was a better bike in almost every way, I felt it just didn't have the same charm and character as my Interceptor. The 80 horsepower of the T120 was nice, but for me, not necessary. At the end of the day, my Interceptor does everything the Bonneville does, but in a slightly more mechanical and playful way. And that's why I love it. There's nothing better than having to go through all of the gears, using every inch of the Interceptor's engine to go from point A to point B. Every journey, on the Interceptor is an event. I should have mentioned that the T120 also cost three times the amount I paid for my Interceptor. Back to the main question at hand though, would you be disappointed with 45 horsepower on a motorcycle? But the question you have to ask yourself is this, what is low power? Yes, as a figure, 45 horsepower isn't as much as 60 or 100 like many other bikes, But this number doesn't really tell you anything about the bike. Forget comparing facts and figures. I guess the real question you should be asking yourself is what do you want to get out of your motorcycle experience? What do you want your motorcycle to do? Will this particular motorcycle achieve these goals? And how does this motorcycle make me feel? Once you know all of this, you'll be able to know if 45 horsepower is going to disappoint you or not. It's very well said, Will, and, and I do echo your thoughts because I've been in a similar situation with my Bonneville. Every so often I'll think, oh, you know, the Bonneville, 65 horsepower. Should I upgrade it? Possibly to the T120 or Speedmaster? Should I get something slightly more powerful? But every time I seriously consider it, I'm I'm just left, if I'm level-headed, thinking, I've never once ridden my Bonneville and thought, God, I wish I had more power. Genuinely, I've never once thought that ever. And I've come from a 130 horsepower bike, down half the size to this, and I've never ever believed or had a desire to have any more power. And bikes get under your skin, if we look aside from all of that performance side of things, just like yours has, Will. They become a member of the family, I now don't know if I could sell my Bonneville because I have this very strange and tangible draw and connection to my Bonneville like a family member. I, I couldn't bear to sell it because of this strange attachment. I've got to it. I just, I honestly think I'd be heartbroken. Will, if I sold it and any feeling of considering better motorcycles, that are better in every way than my Bonneville becomes completely irrelevant because I love my Bonneville too much and I don't care if there's another bike with more power or that's better looking because like a family member, I just love my Bonneville too much to ever consider or to ever consider parting with it. Thank you, Will. I move on to Tassos. Freddy, I'm currently riding a Yamaha TDM 900 It's a bike I bought um, and used with a plan to keep for a few months and then ride it and then trade it, sorry, and trade it in for something else. I decided on this particular bike because I wanted the experience of handling fast bikes. With it, I enjoy cornering like I've never done before. But that's where the upsides end for me. The TDM works well, but I'm now realizing that this, It's just quite a dull experience. Too soon I realised it's not a bike that suits me, even though it suits my commuting needs. So looking into the next one, I don't look for speed anymore, but at the same time, I'm afraid that if I go for slower bikes, I might be disappointed and regret it quite fast. I want something that I'll be able to use in daily urban transportation and the occasional rides exploring places, where I, li- where I live. Some bikes I'm looking into include the Moto cv V7 Stone, the Moto C V85 TT, the Royal Enfield Himalayan, and the Honda CRF 300 L. Let me put pics of these here. Obviously very different bikes, and it comes down to exploring all types and styles of bikes, as I already told you. Look, these options so- show three different scenarios. Do I double down on street riding and do it with some character like the Moto V7? Do I go full dirt riding, invest in learning techniques before going down the real adventure bike lane? Or do I go somewhere in the middle with the Moto V85 TT and the Himalayan, budget or not? I'd love to hear your thoughts as I'm desperate for a different viewpoint and I value your insights and hope that you will share. Cheers, Tassos from Greece. Tassos, I will share a little input from me because I know exactly what you mean. I had my Triumph Speed Triple uh, 1050, and I used to commute from West London over to East London. And it was during that commute that I realized that it probably wasn't the right kind of bike for me because There just aren't those kinds of roads for me that I can enjoy a bike of that power on roads anywhere near the southeast of England. Because in the southeast of England, we are not blessed with glorious open roads. And each bike's good for each scenario. Example, in Tenerife where I stayed for eight months, everyone owns sports bikes. And that's because Tenerife is quite literally just one gigantic racetrack. The roads are racetrack smooth. When you get up into the mountains, they're completely empty. And you can explore the whole island in about an hour and a half, so you never have that fatigue element. You don't need a big comfortable bike in Tenerife. People there buy weapons to enjoy the mountain roads, and they make sense there. But in Southeast England, for me, in my situation, super nakeds and super bikes for me didn't work because we just don't have those open winding roads. And I found myself doing the entire journey from West London to East London with one specific bend that I would really enjoy. And every day commuting to work, I would look forward to that one bend. And it was a bend in built up London. But every day I would just hope that that bend would be empty and there'd be no car ahead of me. And if there was no car ahead of me, I'd just back off a little bit and then give it some to really push it and lean as much as I could into that bend. But I realized after a while that this doesn't make sense to me. I need a bike that can be genuinely fun at all speeds. I need a bike that can actually be fun at, at low speeds, at 30 miles an hour and 20 miles an hour. And that's why I ended up graduating or uh, moving into modern classics, because they're fun at all speeds. I'm having just as much fun at 20 miles an hour. And Tassos, I think you may in, be in the same situation as me here. You need something with character, something that can be fun at lower speed, something that can brighten up your commute on a daily basis. So I'm going to immediately remove that Honda for you. That will definitely be the most fun off-roading, but I think that's the kind of bike you would have if you can afford two motorbikes. So I'm getting rid of it. Now I've ridden all of the other ones here. Now this is the tricky bit, Tassos. Do you go for the Himalayan, which will be by far the most fun off-road? I've never had so much fun biking as taking a Himalayan off-road and I, I, I didn't care if I dropped it. And I would pick it back up and I would carry on because that's what the Himalayan's about. It loves getting roughed up in the dirty stuff. The problem is, when you're on the road, it is gutless but it still has character. But would you find that lack of performance slightly annoying after a while? Look, then we get to the Moto Guzzi V7 or the V85 TT. The V85 TT will not be anywhere near as fun as the Himalayan off-roading. But it will be much better than it on the road. This is a really tricky one, Tassos, here you've got. Really seriously tricky between the three of them. It, if you're only off-roading, for example, once every two months or so, I would say go for the Motor V7 and maybe just put a bash plate on it underneath because you can still do soft off-roading. I do plenty of soft off-roading on the Bonneville. I just put a crash plate underneath it, perfectly decent. Honestly, it really is. You'd be amazed at what these bikes can do. Crash plate to protect the rear frame and to protect the bottom of the engine. And that that goodsy will be fine for some softish off-roading. My advice for you, pick the V7 because it's the bike you're going to be spending the most amount of time on the roads on your commute. And I think you'll be enjoying the, the city commute on roads the most on the V7 out of all three of them. But it's a very hard one, Tassos. Let me know what you go for. Send pics, please. Move on to the last one for the day, from Ken. Uh, Freddie, help me out here. I want a 125cc bike, and I want a classic cool looking bike. I like the look of the AJS Tempest. Let me put some pics up. AJS Tempest and Mutt Mastiff. Uh, Could you do something on classic looking one, two, fives. I value your opinion. I'm 55 years young and I've only ever had mopeds when I was 17 and 18. I want to go to work on it and have fun at the weekends around the Cotswolds and beyond. Ken. Ken, this this is a really, really tricky one because you've got almost two completely separate areas here. There's a lot of choice and this is some some substantial new choices come out in the past 10 years or so. Do you go Japanese with the likes of the Yamaha XSR 125? That would fit your needs perfectly. It will be very well built. It will have a good warranty. It will be, it will be reliable. That will be a good bike. Or do you go with the likes of a Mutt? Now I've ridden a Mutt and they look amazing. They're probably just about as good a looking one, two, five as you can get anywhere on the market. And I would say it's a better looking bike than the Yamaha, but they're, they're made in China. And some people do have an issue with made in China bikes. And I will admit that the Yamaha's are better built bikes. So if you buy a Mutt or an AGS, AJS, you will have to sacrifice at least an element of that build quality and that reliability for for the style and it comes down to style versus the reliability and it's a really really tricky one because you get so much style with the likes of the mutts Uh, I'm very very close to being on the fence here if it were my money Ken I would be looking at the likes of a Mutt. And the reason I do say Mutt specifically, uh, that is a British brand and they've got their, their big office up in Birmingham. So they do have a proper base here. So yes, you'll be covered by the warranty, but also you will have help at hand with Mutt here in the UK. You'll be able to get parts relatively easily. And if there's anything that goes wrong, you should be in fairly good hands with that. It comes down to it for me, a looks, it comes down to looks, how a bike makes me feel. And those mutts do have all of the looks and the feel of of the likes of Triumph from Royal Enfield. And they're a brilliant way to get people into biking and back into biking. Because up until 10 years ago, Ken, when I passed my test, I remember a year or so before I passed my test thinking, okay, that's fine, it's fine. Cool 125s don't exist, so i have to get some atrocious-looking plastic commuter 125. I guess I'll just have to wait until I pass my test to get something that looks cool. But all that's changed now, and that's hugely thanks to the like of Mutt motorcycles. So we've got a, a lot to be thankful for, for AGS, AJS, held motorcycles, Mutt. They've completely changed the game. And you've got the Japanese lot now coming along with the likes of the XSR125. But that really, for me, is thanks to the likes of Mutt who have brought this to all of our attention. Ken, let me know what you go for. Right, I'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. Have a fantastic week all, and I'll speak to you all in the next one.